of a sudden the digital commons that we have access to have radically changed what it means to be a global citizen. Hello and welcome to Tetatet, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Mayo Kimoto, and today we have another installment in our series of digital remote interviews in collaboration with Platt Journal. We have with us Brittany Utting and Daniel Jacobs of Research and Design Collaborative Home Office. Brittany is an assistant professor of architecture at Rice University. Daniel is a lecturer at Salzman College of Architecture and Urban Planning at the University of Michigan. Brittany and DJ, thank you both for joining us today to have this conversation. Thank you so much, Mai. We're really excited to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. To get started, could you share about how Home Office was founded? We started working together in grad school, collaborating on a design studio project taught by Pierre Vittorio Aureli in our advanced studio in 2014. Our project was called Alcova, and it was to design collective housing for Houston. So we were looking at deeds and covenants, suburban infrastructures to provide a new type of housing and way of life for inhabitants of the Houston periphery. We started getting interested in understanding housing as the site of production and reproduction, looking at housing as the fundamental architecture that shapes our everyday lives and structures the foundational political and social ties that we share with other people. It was really important for us starting out through the project of housing and the agendas of collective life and cooperative labor that housing can embody. After graduating, we practiced for a few years. And in 2017, I received the Willard A. Oberdick Fellowship at the University of Michigan, which is a teaching and research fellowship. Part of that fellowship is doing a research project and accompanying exhibition. That project, 138 Model Homes, was picking up that thread from Alcova, looking at the deeds and covenants, looking at the documentation that constructs the built environment and the juridical overlay of housing. And so we picked that thread up through the developer catalog that fully authors and controls the built environment of most typical housing stock that many people live in. And so starting off with the developer catalog was a way to kind of start tweaking its logic, tweaking its material systems, tweaking its economic agendas. And so what the project was, was creating 138 new model homes, new typologies that recombine rooms, programs, hallways, restructured property, restructured privacy, restructured publics in relationship to the suburban landscape. That project 138 Model Homes was really sort of the launch of home office as a practice. Could you talk about the name of home office and the intentions behind that name? The idea of home office was in many ways following the tradition of the material feminists who argued that the home was the site in which production and reproduction were situated. And as such, the home was the kind of foundation, the core of our political economy. And so I think we named it home office as a way to capture that political imaginary and argue that there is space of political agency and political action that can be in the private realm. It's an acknowledgement of how a lot of young architecture firms start out. You know, you don't have a designated space or independent income, so you have to sort of work out of the space of your own domestic environment. So it's a labor acknowledgement to a certain degree of how and where you produce the work that comes from the practice. The focus of your work captures this labor and production through this built form. 
And your more recent works like Retagging and Instant Nature, they're focusing on the individual components and materials that are constructing this built space. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how these spaces are engaging and affecting the users and their labors in production and consumption. The new projects we're working on seek to sort of participate in this project of revealing or making evident underlying conditions of labor and material economies and any other sort of attendant social issues that arise around any sort of physical material in the built environment. That could be incredibly broad in scope, which I think is really critical. You know, when I look at a window frame that's made of aluminum and a sealant and a piece of glass, I understand that it was manufactured somewhere maybe nearby, but the reality is that the constituent parts of that object comes from all over the world, involved labor processes and extractive production methods that we have really no idea about. And so getting to the bottom of all of those conditions can actually help us understand and reframe the way that we design and the way that architects interface with broader flows of capital. Part of our practice is looking at architecture through two scopes. One is architectural form, as a non-neutral carrier and sedimentation of our habits, of our material conditions, of our affective condition. On the other hand, we also look at architecture as a non-neutral set of assembly. We're interested in understanding how the architectural detail, the kind of assemblage of pieces of parts of steel, of rubber, of glass, of concrete, how every time an architect draws it and makes a decision about how it comes together, that decision mobilizes an incredible force of material extraction, of labor production. And every drawing we make isn't neutral, but in fact, is inherently tied to and embedded in our political economy. Mm-hmm. And so we're interested in working at two scales, that of form and that of assemblage, looking at typology and the material and technical conditions of every detail. And so I think by working at both scales, architects have the capacity to look at form as a non-neutral frame and also looking at the detail as a non-neutral assembly. And the project you just mentioned, uh, retagging and instant nature, I mean, they're pretty simple in their conception. Retagging really seeks to add a sticker or a tag to a material in the built environment that is tied to a spreadsheet that's constantly updating and accessible to a new kind of public that allows you to understand not only its sort of value within our economic structure, but also its carbon footprint. It's what we're calling a labor footprint. Who works on it, how much it's worked through all of these supply chains and flows. And so that simple move of putting a tag on something, which you know we do all the time in the material schedule and in a drawing set, which a public has no access to that kind of information, that the idea is that maybe by making it more evident like that, it could be part of a broader conversation. It seems like there's always these layers and layers of information behind the built space that you're trying to capture. And I get this sense that there's optimism and this embrace of all this data. It's mobile and there's this unpredictability and disorder in this good way that's capturing this individual narrative behind each data point. I was wondering if you could talk about these opportunities and potential that you see in not rejecting all the data that's out there. What we're really interested in doing is basically unsmoothing the smooth flows of capital. And I think that that can happen in a lot of ways. As architects, we often unsmooth things by making sort of novel details, questioning joints, producing tectonic systems that defamiliarize 
the user and defamiliarize the built environment. And I think another way to do it is to kind of reveal the labor, to kind of re-embed land, labor, and capital into its site, into its context. So I think that a huge part of the project and the foregrounding of data, the purpose of that is really about saying that this is not abstract. These flows are not seamless and they're not frictionless. They are part of a very brutal, violent reality that we are complicit in every time we make a drawing, every time we make a decision about how a wall section comes together, every time we sort of decide on how a building sits on a site. And so we have to sort of acknowledge the material labor and other flows that we participate in as architects. And I think that rejecting the sort of plethora or modes of operating on data and the scale and vastness of it, because it's complicit in the evils of contemporary corporate persuasion, for example, data gathering about where you are with your cell phone and how that being remapped onto urban environments to guide you towards buying certain things where any data is used for sort of profit motive. I think it's really important to sort of take a step back and figure out how data can be re-inscribed everything you do so that it could be used as a space of resistance or to reveal something that might make you think twice about the environment that you live in or allow you to sort of organize politically in a new way. And it's a constant debate in terms of the architecture lobby or other activist groups. What is the most effective way to gather and reveal that those kinds of data sets so that we can act more effectively in terms of either you know political action or or even just reforming our own discipline? I yeah, I noticed that these design solutions they reflect that information, whether it's the scattered workspaces in the project office party or as a result of these independent data points moving on their own, they appear random as yellow highlights on the spreadsheet of the retagging, or these endless floor plans of the model homes that are computer generated through the combinatorics. But then on the other hand, the processes behind it, and then also the ways in which you present these design solutions, they could be characterized as rigorous and precise and very intentional with the aesthetics of your renders. They're set on an infinite plane and they have no figures. And they're also selective about the use of pop colors. And so I was wondering if you could talk about the dichotomy between the two. Was one influenced by the other or did they develop in parallel out of different intentions? To talk first about an aesthetic of disorder, of scattering, we're interested in approaching architectural space and architectural data, not through a composition that signals playfulness but is in fact quite rigid in its outcome. But we're interested in designing organizational structures, open frames, spatial systems that give an agency back to those that use the data, those that use the space. It's an architecture that doesn't perform the aesthetics of playfulness or of nonchalance. It's an architecture that's seeking a deeper rigor, a deeper precision through its detailing, through its tectonic systems, through its spatial platforms that it proposes. And that rigorous system produces the possibility of agency for those that actually use the space or engage with its different platforms. And the project you refer to called Office Party, which was a proposal for new Bureau Landschaft or office landscaping protocol for the office environment, where we were looking at how the integrated technologies of desking infrastructure by companies like Herman Miller, who were putting a ton of data gathering 
tools within office desking systems could be sort of recaptured by office workers through new software platforms and protocols and automated systems. Very simply, we did kind of a patent drawing for uh, motorized wheels that could be used to move desks around through a simple app, which isn't really far from where these furniture companies are actually working now. But the idea is that with the swipe of your finger on a phone, you could reorganize an entire zone of desks in an office space. The question we have for ourselves is what architecturally needs to happen for that to become a smoother process? So the idea isn't to do a top-down managerial overhaul of how work happens and the desking situations that would make it most productive, but instead giving the workers the ability to randomize and completely change their desking environment so you could, say, have a dance party. The agency goes back to the the workers in the space. It's an authorship that doesn't belong to us, the architects. The authorship maybe is more in the organizational system, but not the final outcome. And then that kind of brings me to the second part of your question, which is looking at the aesthetics of the renders. You called out the pop colors, the glossiness. And I think that especially for Office Party, that was a really important approach to the image making process. We wanted the images to, in a way, function as the sort of Trojan horse, right? One that we could too easily persuade We Live or Herman Miller to adopt and place in their catalogs, when in fact, the deeper structure embedded in the new organizational system was really about making a space of unworking, right? Making a space that's unproductive, making a space that's not optimized for corporate productivity, but one that actually undermines the deeper agendas in the labor office. And so I think that that was also something that we wanted to make evident in the renders, in the colors, pop sensibilities of the aesthetics of that project. You talked a little bit about the name of your practice home office, but also I wanted to ask about your project titles because they're all in capitals and they're always composed by two words tied by a hyphen. And they're not wordplay, I am guessing. So for instance, it's model hyphen home, the hyphen tagging, instant hyphen nature to name few of the projects that we've been talking about. What are the thoughts and intentions behind the structure of these names? So the hyphen really serves to sort of conflate and realign two disparate ideas or operations that we are trying to hold intention in each of the projects. So presenting home and office together, you know, obviously puts you into the realm of the domestic or into the realm of production. Or with something like instant nature, you have two competing notions of time and space. So nature is something that actually has a geological time scale. By putting those two terms intention in a type of binary, it helps us sort of, as we design the project or work through the research, it always puts us in conflict with the title itself. And I think that's really crucial. By putting these seemingly contradictory or oppositional terms into tension, by tying them together, it reveals that maybe these terms aren't so contradictory. For unworking, for instance, it's not an act of negation. It's about finding and reframing the conditions of work. It's not about undoing or destroying. It's actually about reworking. And so I think that it's important that the juxtaposition of these two terms 
they're kind of in a way an act of optimism, an act of reseeking new frames of how we work together. And so I think that that's an important aspect of the hyphenation. We're also interested in some of the syntactical operations that the titles bring to the table. So, you know, a simple addition of re to tagging makes it so that we have to accept that tagging occurs, but we're tagging again anew, right? Or unworking, right? Where it's the precursor to reworking. Each one of those examples for us really serves a purpose in the process that I think is really critical to the origin point of each project. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what has been going on recently with you and also society overall. You mentioned that you're now both based in Houston, so there's that change in location for you guys. And then more at the societal level, COVID-19, it's brought forth this new normal that we're all adapting to, and it's redefined our lifestyles and the domestic spaces. And then there's also this societal inequity that maybe they're heightened or, you know, it's just become more visible what was hidden before. There have been nationwide protests against the systemic racism and violence. And through that, these calls to assess and act against the forms of institutional racism and bias that are present in the architecture, education, and profession. So I wanted to ask how these shifts have affected the way you think about and approach your practice, your teaching. I think it's important first to maybe not call this moment a new normal, because if we become naturalized to this constant state of emergency, to this constant threat of violence, it makes us retreat. It's important to say, this is not normal. This is not okay. And that kind of anger and that disbelief, we have to capture that energy and mobilize it. In a way, it's a really important moment for us to be architects, to be students, to be citizens right now, to be in the world. Because I think that the neoliberal system has fully revealed its cruel reality. This COVID pandemic crisis, the Black Lives Matter movement, and this moment of understanding and acknowledging systemic racism that exists in our institutions. This is a moment of revolution, right? This is a moment where we can actually together change not just the discipline, not just architecture school, but actually change the neoliberal world where we have to demand that we're all in this together and without acknowledging that we are a collective body, that we we share this world, this new normal, this emergency state will get worse and worse. This is a moment where people sort of have to fight back and say, this is not okay. And we're in this together. And again, on top of one-time mobilization of that anger, I think we have to figure out really good strategies and tactics for sustaining and maintaining that conversation over a really long period of time, ideally indefinitely. Structural racism has been around forever, and we have to figure out ways to constantly reassess our relationship to it via the institutions we're part of and our own actions and acknowledge our own complicity within these structures. And this pandemic's gonna last a really long time and there are gonna be other crises that we deal with. So figuring out ties of solidarity and coalitions that can very quickly work together to do research, to design new ways of living, to figure out how to respond in radical ways. In a way, the kind of twin crises of COVID-19 and these global marches against systemic racism. I think that in a way, it's important to look at them as a pair of actions, a pair of conditions, because all of us were isolated. All of us vanished from public space. All of us 
could no longer be together. That also forced us to mobilize in sort of new ways. Forms of digital communication became the kind of locus of these protests. It sort of expanded the public realm. It was no longer an issue of only being on the streets. All of a sudden, we could work with people who are in completely different parts of the country, different parts of the world, different time zones, people that we are often isolated from or don't know. All of a sudden, there's an equivalency to how we could work with them. And so I think that that's also a really amazing moment. That's why it became a global project, because all of a sudden it didn't matter what country or state or time zone you were in. Everyone kind of recognized that they were in this condition together. And I think that that's a really important thing to learn as architects. It expands the built environment. It's not just something that is built. All of a sudden, the digital commons that we have access to have radically changed what it means to be a global citizen. In the midst of all this, you completed a new project called Palm House. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Palm House has been a really fun project to work on. It takes as its site the Orto Botanico, the, the botanical gardens in Padua, Italy, which is one of the oldest still extant research gardens in the world. It was founded in the 16th century and it's kind of this walled enclosure that was protecting botanical specimens. And inside this garden, there's a palm tree of the variety Chimerops humulus, which is known as the Goethe palm because it was one of the oldest specimens in the garden. And Goethe allegedly sat underneath it and developed his theory for the metamorphosis of plants through looking at its fronds. And so the project that we decided to work on was looking at Proposing three new palm houses to protect or re-engage with that specimen and as an architectural interface between people, the sort of labor that goes into maintaining that ecological system, and as a way to sort of discuss the environmental problems we're facing right now as a culture and a society. It's about moving past these sort of mythical founding stories of Goethe sitting under the palm and understanding the eternal presence of the Renaissance ideal garden. It's about saying the ecological commons that we're part of, that includes our own bodies, that includes our atmospheres, that includes our health, that includes the environments and ecologies that we participate in as humans. It's about saying, look, this is not an ideal garden that can't ever be encircled in a wall. The built environment and the natural environment clash together in extremely violent ways. And we were interested in making an architecture that revealed how architecture is this very problematic interface between nature, capital, land, labor, ethics of maintenance. And it's about understanding the greenhouse as an architecture that it's vulnerable, but it still protects another vulnerable species, right? And so I think it's about using new tectonic systems and environmental conditions to produce environments to sort of nurture and protect and care for specimens that are increasingly endangered, that are increasingly sort of unable to live in the kind of environmental and atmospheric conditions that we're producing. The palm houses have filtration systems that protect the specimen from pollutants and other particles. The palm houses include wall units that keep the plant warm during moments of extreme cold and also can cool the plant in moments of extreme heat. So we're looking at an architecture that becomes this calibrating adjusting instrument. Palm House, more than anything, is about understanding and describing that we are part of uh, an ecological commons and that our bodies and the bodies of plants are equally vulnerable. And so it's about creating this trans-species environment that is always about making visible and calibrating the relationship between labors of care, of caregiving, and the 
ecosystems that are necessary to support life. That last point is really critical that each of the palm houses, they don't seek to sort of optimize the production of the plant, which is what commercial greenhouses are supposed to do. But instead, as an architectural interface between these trans-species realignments that we're seeking to make, they reveal both the labor and care that the plant goes through, the worker who has to clean the leaves, the the schedules of air and the light schedules and pollination protocols that you have to be aware of in order for the plant that's existing outside of its natural habitat to be able to reacclimate. But also beyond that, again, doing the research and revealing the labor acknowledgement and material acknowledgement of the architecture itself. So for us, what that meant was really digging deep into where the materials that go into production of the plant and the architecture come from, you know, the soil, the perlite, the aluminum extrusions, the acrylic of the greenhouse, where they're fabricated, who produces them, and what those implications are, especially as a kind of proxy research for what a future horticultural landscape looks like where our food production is grown predominantly indoors in these vast, massive greenhouse complexes that are being built all over the world. And the implications of materially are for architecture and for our urban spaces. And also just to sort of circle back to your original question about this relationship between the new project that we've been working on designing in quarantine and a state of uprootedness and the COVID-19 crisis. And so I think that the pandemic is not only a pandemic that's related to health. It's a moment of laying bare how neoliberalism has completely dismantled all of our systems of care. The Palm House Project is really about recapturing ways of being, working, living together. Palm House is really about saying that we are actually all in this together. We share this space and architecture and the kind of environment that it's part of has to reflect that. Wow, such a fascinating project and it brings up so much to think about. For the listeners in New York City, the Palm House Project will be opening Saturday, November 8th at the City Group Gallery. Brittany and DJ, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. For more on Home Office and their project, check out their website, home-office.co. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases of our collaborative series with Plat Journal. I'm your host, Mai Okimoto, and this has been Tete a